this section in the Sermon on Mount is talking about something that is so prevalent in our culture. Adultery and divorce. And it's not a light subject. And I'll be honest with you, I wrestled with it this week. And I asked quite a few people for prayer on this. Because in this topic, we could spend 10 weeks on, on it and still not do it justice uh, for everywhere we turn in our culture. So this morning, hopefully in one sermon, I can get the 10 hours that I really wanted to, to, to put into it. You know, last week we talked about anger. And we talked about uh, anger being the seed that grows into murder and Jesus equating the two. And we talked about hating sin in, in a righteous anger kind of way. It's, but anger is hating the sin in someone else. But lust is learning to hate the sin within yourself. That really brings it home because that is an internal prideful sin that has nothing to do with anyone else. Anger usually results from someone else. Lust flows from within. That's going to be a big part of what we're talking about this morning. And sadly, um, the church is not comfortable talking about this. But the world is very comfortable talking about this. Everywhere you turn, the world has something to say about sex and, and marriage and what you should be finding your pleasure and desire in. So now looking through this text this morning, the sermon title that just kept coming back to me over and over again with these, these two themes of, of desire, uh, things swelling up from our heart, and deceit. The lies that the world tells us about those desires. So hopefully you see that thread through this message this morning. Uh, so important in a text like this, in topics like this, that everyone has an opinion on and the world wants you to think a certain way on, we as the body of Christ and as believers in this world need to be equipped to have these conversations. We need to be equipped to have these conversations with our kids because public schools and programming for kids are having these conversations whether we know it or not. As early as elementary school, they are talking about sex and they are talking about the, the, the ways in which the world thinks we should approach marriage and sex and relationships between men and women and all other kinds of things we don't want our, our kids hearing about. But unfortunately, the world around us has a different agenda. And we as the body need to be rooted in biblical principles. We need to bring it back uh, all the way to the beginning. Last week, we talked about the difference between the letter and the spirit of the law. The letter is do not kill. The spirit is if there's anger welling up within you that wishes someone dead, that is the same as committing murder. So when we look at the letter of the law, the letter of the law is pretty straightforward. The letter of the law, here's, here's the uh, short version. Marriage is a covenant between man and woman, grounded in faith, enacted before God, and only canceled at death. Marriage, a covenant between man and woman, enacted uh, in faith before God, and only canceled at death. Sex is a beautiful thing instituted by God so that men and women in that covenant bond can be fruitful and multiply and enjoy intimacy so profound that it should be held sacred and undefiled. Say that again. Sex is a beautiful thing instituted by God so that a man and woman in that covenant bond of marriage can be fruitful and multiply and enjoy an intimacy so profound that it should be held sacred and undefiled. Book close. Amen. Amen. But close, case over, the letter is simple, right? The spirit in our culture is very, very different. 
And it's much more complicated and it's much more deep rooted. But for us to have a biblical worldview, before we even get into this text, we need to go back to the beginning. Last week, we started from the beginning. What was the purpose of the law? This week, we're going to start the beginning of what is the purpose of the relationship between man and woman? The bond between man and woman is one of those rare blessings that continues after the fall. When Adam and Eve sinned, there was a curse put on the earth and put on mankind. And many things that were in that perfect humanity, work being without, without toil, communion with God was shattered. But the marriage bond between man and woman has continued. And Jesus still had to, held to it. The apostles still held to it. Because at its very roots, the marital bond and the marital pattern is rooted in the character of God. Our God is a relational God. Our God is Father, Son, and Spirit. Three in persons, one in in unity. And the relationship between man and wife is to reflect that perfect submission and complementary nature that God has within himself. Back to square one. Humanity was in a perfect state in the garden. They walked with God. Adam and Eve were so closely linked that God saw fit to pull Eve from Adam's very body. The two were literally of one flesh. And that is the picture we get of marriage from Scripture. The two as one flesh. We're going to read in a moment from Ephesians 5 where that is kind of fleshed out. that You would not hurt your own flesh, would you? That's what Paul is saying When you commit adultery, when you go outside of your marriage, you are harming your own flesh. And that shalom, that perfect peace and order that man and woman shared together in the garden. We have a small glimpse of that here on earth and we see that perfected. That picture of marriage is put on full display in its most splendid, I don't know if that's even a word, but... Sometimes you, you, you can't put the glory of God into terms. But God's splendor and wonder in human relationship is put on display when the bride of Christ, the ultimate marriage parallel, comes home. The bride welcomes her in that spotless gown. And there's a celebration for all the saints throughout all times. So, our pattern for marriage is perfected in the new creation, and in that consummation wedding. So the real heart of marriage begins in creation and is fulfilled in new creation. So we can't see it as simply a worldly institution. We can't let the civil governments tell us what marriage is. We can't let prevailing culture tell us what marriage is. God has told us in creation and new creation what that relationship looks like. And so, So what does that mean for us? in between broken humanity and perfected humanity. So as we look through this text and we live the rest of our lives, what is the relationship, the romantic relationship, the relationship between husband and wife, between men and women, what does it look like between broken humanity and fall and perfected humanity and the coming of our Lord? We must remember as we cannot lose sight of either. We can't forget The pattern, we can't stop looking at the perfected example. Because everything in our lives, including this very important discussion, 
must be rooted in the creation and recreation that is held together by Jesus Christ, creator himself. Let's pray and then read our text. Heavenly Father, uh, please guide me this morning. Please use your spirit because I am sinful. I myself have wrestled with my own desires in, in this very area. And Lord, it is so difficult for us to look to you who has been our perfect, faithful bridegroom, and we are your adulterous bride. We've gone to everything but you for fulfillment. Lord, forgive us that we would have hearts that are turned to you, that we would pour out our desire and longing into the things that matter for eternity and stop turning to temporal things, things that are wasting and dying away and that only lead to death. And Lord, I just pray this morning that this text would come alive to us and that you would strengthen the marriages in this room and you would use us to strengthen other marriages and you would prepare those who are not yet married to know what this beautiful picture is. Oh, that our children would see godly marriage lifted up and put on display and the perversions of the world shunned from our midst. Lord, we love you and we praise you and lift these things up in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to continue where we've been reading. I'm going to start in verse 27 and read to verse 32. Matthew 5, 27. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said... Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is God's word. All right. Verse 27. Shall not commit adultery. Most of us as children memorize the Ten Commandments. We know the Seventh Commandment pretty well. We're familiar with it. The idea of adultery comes, must be seen in uh, view of a biblical view of marriage itself. And, you know, this is difficult for us to discuss in such a short period of time. It's difficult to get into all the intricacies of marriage. But hopefully, as we walk through this, you see the bigger picture. Because a marriage that is founded in God's word is bigger than my pride or my wife's. It's bigger than your pride or your spouse. It's bigger than how you feel about things. It's rooted in the character of God himself and perfected in Christ and his church. And that's the first thing I want to see. If you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. It's one of those passages where we can't go through this text without looking at Ephesians chapter 5. 
And if you're with us in our Wednesday night study, I hope you think about this for the next few weeks because we will cover this, this passage. This has so many implications for us. Because if we just saw our marriages the way Paul describes marriage, if we saw the opposite sex the way Paul describes it, we would not have divorce. But unfortunately, we fall short. So in most of your Bibles, we're in Ephesians chapter 25, that section starts in in verse 22. But if you've been in a Bible study with me, if we've talked about Scripture at all, I will always tell you to not look look at the divisions in your Bible always, because sometimes they will get us to miss the point of the argument. Because this section should start at verse 21. So we're going to start in verse 21. Ephesians 5, verse 21. This is the basis for everything that comes after. Bless you. 521. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's actually a beginning of, it completes the previous thought. And it's a bridge to the next thought, but that's the basis for the rest of it. In marriage, if we have nothing, if you come away with nothing else from this conversation, we should know that we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Then where do we go? Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. That verse has caused some people to get a little stiff in our modern culture. We don't like God's roles for marriage. But this is not negotiable. Our 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 human culture and our uh, you know we live in a culture that is that believes that it's evolving, that morality evolves, and that we evolve and these tired ideas from the Bible uh, don't hold sway anymore because I feel differently. But we must be rooted in God's very nature because this is the most beautiful picture in all of Scripture. Let's read on. For the husband is the head of one wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit In everything to their husbands. Remember this in the lens of submitting to one another. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So the the world loves to read women submit to your husbands. They don't like to read on and look at as Christ loved the church. In a few moments, Paul is going to talk about how much did Christ love the church. Christ wasn't thinking about his comfort when he left the throne of power next to the Father and walked down to earth to get dirt in between his fingers, or in between his toes, and to live with bugs and disease and death and sin. The type of godly husband that we see in Scripture is the one who leaves his comfort for the betterment of his bride. That is not the picture of this marriage that's so separated by the, the, the sexes. Jesus came to serve. Jesus served his, his bride by seeking after them when they hated him. Seeking after them in their sin. Seeking after them in their harlotry against other gods. That's the love of a, wife, of a husband toward a wife. And he gave himself for her. 
that he might sanctify her. We're talking about Christ now. And having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does does the church. I think every woman in here wants to be loved that way and should be loved that way. And you can't argue with a marriage that looks like that. A husband was willing to lay down his life for his wife, to give up everything that he holds dear for his own flesh. You know, the pejoratives we use in our, in, in our culture, you know, um, ball and chain and all these other things. We look at marriage in a negative light. Oh, you're, you're married. I'm sorry for you. How sad is that, that that's the prevailing thought in our culture? But Paul goes on a step further. Verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. The marriage bond is to be one of nourishment and cherishing as your own flesh. If you want to harm your spouse, you might as well have cut off your own foot. Because we are members of his body. Our marriage is not rooted in ourselves and in our pride. It is union with Christ. It's the theme of the entire book of Ephesians. We are to be united and members of his body coming together as one with Christ as the head. Therefore, we say we go back to the beginning. He goes all the way back here and quotes Genesis 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul draws this connection all the way back to Genesis. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. This picture of a man and woman, again, is perfected in Christ in the church. However... Let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. There is such biblical wisdom here. And I know you've, if you've been in the church for any amount of time, you've heard about how women desire love and men desire respect. And we, we, we should know this. I'm just going to take just a, a moment to, to touch on this. Because as the head of the house, women, you should respect your husband. God has placed him as the head of your household. And men, you should love your wives so that she wants to respect you. So that she can't help but respect you because you love her so well. See how this is reciprocal? Because when the wife doesn't respect the husband, he has a hard time loving her. And the husband doesn't love the wife, she has a hard time respecting him. And it's just a cycle of damage and hurt and pain. And a friend of mine who was going through a terrible divorce, it's just miserable. They both knew the Lord, but they both could not get outside of themselves. And he asked me, do you think there's any hope for us? Can our marriage be saved? And I told him, if both of you submit to the Lord, if you come before each other humbly, if you deny yourselves and serve one another, there's no way you could get divorced. They weren't willing to do it. You know, the sad thing in our culture is we are so used to seeing 
marriages break up. Larry told us yesterday about a term I'd never even heard of. Starter marriage. We're, we have, we've set the bar so low for marriage that this is just a trial run. People are going into marriage knowing it's not going to work. I mean, how pitiful is that? So please, as the church, do not take your cues for marriage from the culture. Do not listen to every voice out there that tells you that your feelings and your immediate pleasure is what's most important. You know, one of the words we use for this is infidelity. I looked up the root of this word. It's fascinating to me because in its Latin roots, it is literally lack of faith. And we use it more of lack of faithfulness. But I think lack of faith is more appropriate. It's not just simply a lack of faith that your uh, spouse doesn't have the, the capability to satisfy you. But it's even more so, it's a lack of faith in God's promises, in God's pattern. Because when we don't see the value in what God has put in place, it's easy for us to not have faith in it. But if we trust that God will honor the marriage that honors him, God will honor the marriage that has him as its, its head, God will honor the people who submit to each other in Christ's name, then we have faith in him because we have faith in his promises. But the world doesn't know God. The world doesn't see him as a creator and father, the way scripture describes it. And ultimately, as the bridegroom. And it's interesting as I'm looking at all the different passages, and I can go a thousand different ways on this, this topic there's a passage in Malachi 2 I want you to turn to with me. It's really interesting. It just hit home for me. So if you turn to Malachi 2 for me, I think it helps to, to tie this together. Malachi 2, verses 13 through 16. Um, let me just set the stage uh, pretty, pretty quickly here. The uh, prophets of the Old Testament, they came to usually pronounce judgment on Israel. When Israel was being unfaithful, they, were, they, were, they did not have faith in what God had planned for them, what God had told them. The prophets came to basically tell them to repent and believe. It's like John the Baptist was the last prophet. That was the message of all the, the prophets before him. Repent and believe. Turn from your idols and turn to the Lord. Listen to this. It's very, very interesting because... Um, Malachi is right now chastising Judah. He just finished chastising Israel. Now he's chastising Judah. And listen to what he says. Verse 13. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord has witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the, what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. 
says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourself in the spirit and do not be fruitless. Um, also, the uh, Septuagint, the Old Testament in, in, in Greek says here that the Lord hates divorce. Um, it's not in the Hebrew text, but we use it from the, the Greek New Testament. I think from the language here, it's, it's pretty clear that he does. But you see what Malachi is doing here, what the Lord's speaking, the Spirit is speaking through Malachi. That he's comparing the idolatry of Judah running to idols, running to other gods of a man who forgets the wife of his youth. A man who is unfaithful to his wife. So God is saying when you're idolatrous and you turn your heart to other things, you're unfaithful to me. And it's interesting that he uses the picture of marriage to talk about our idolatry. When we run to other things and seek security in things that are not the Lord. And divorce is connected with violence. That was God's people were not faithful to him. And the violence that Israel and Judah experienced because of that, that faithlessness, that breaking that covenant bond that God made with his people. So that is adultery in the eyes of Scripture. God's people turning from his promises. And so we know that's not just the letter, but that's a heart issue. When we see that fleshed out, if we go back to Matthew in verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery. Um, Or if you literally come out of the Greek, it is you look at someone with the purpose of lusting after her. Um, you know, the moment you break the tenth commandment, you're, you've you've broken the seventh. And we know what the, what the tenth commandment is. What's the first few words of the tenth, tenth commandment? Someone covet what? Covet your neighbor's wife. The moment you break the tenth commandment, you've broken the seventh. And let's 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 be honest here. This is difficult for every guy in the room, ladies. I'm gonna let you off the hook for just. A minute. Um, you know, every guy in here knows this struggle. I, I'm no stranger to it. And, and it, it used to be a little easier, right? It used to be in, in Bible times, you could just avoid that block or you avoid that, that, that woman from uh, Proverbs who would just lead you astray. Now, we can't avoid TV, magazines, internet, uh, Commercials during football. Come on, I can't. If anything that, that that we're not being bombarded with this idolatry of sexuality everywhere. I mean, the world is setting men up for failure. There's a reason. I mean, yes, this is kind of a this is a patriarchal culture. So Jesus is speaking to the men first as the head of the household, but he also knew where our weaknesses were, what our desires are toward. Are, are, are toward. And this is an issue of the heart. If our heart is not rooted in the things of God, if we are not finding our delight, if we are not turning from our sin and turning to the things of the Lord, uh, we're going to continue to struggle with these things. It's not an easy conversation to have. But the world is willing to have this conversation. They will shout it from the rooftops. If there is no God, there is no eternity, and there is no covenant, you're only left with your desires. 
And desires and feelings are worshipped in our culture. Desires and feelings are worshipped. They are the highest good. That's what you lift up. And we pursue pleasure over the person. We value the feelings over the other person. Um, I love what Ravi Zacharias says about this. In our secular culture, the body is the playing field of life. And pleasure sets the rules. Those are the rules that the world lives by. I mean, that is so different from Scripture. You know, the world's only answer for marriage is pleasure, convenience, and self-serving. And as soon as that wears off, we'll hit the road. It's why we see adultery being prevalent, because the biblical view of marriage has been so shifted and so left behind that the world has redefined our terms. This is not a governmental institution. This was founded in creation. The two became one flesh all the way back to Genesis 2. This is God's plan. It's not listen to the world and listen to the voices that want to undermine and redefine what God has chiseled into stone. There are two lies here. The two lies that people believe in Lusting before going toward adultery and really any other sin. And that there's more pleasure somewhere else. The grass is always greener. And that the pleasure that I'm feeling now and that I'm seeking now is always going to be there. But we know whenever we've chased after anything that is selfish and that is rooted in our carnal desires, it leaves us emptier than we were before. It leaves this bitter taste in our mouth. But the world is the same speech. The devil is the same speech from from day one. Be like God. Have everything at your fingertips. Um, I I feel like I have to lighten it up a little bit. Um, This is this this is heavy. Um, But, you know, when you think about pleasure, um, I think about uh, Reese's Pieces. I know it doesn't really compute, but let, let me let me just kind of bring this 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 home. Like I, I had one of these 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 moments uh, in in high school. I, I worked uh, at a place for uh, kids. They jump and ran and made messes and all that stuff. Um, and they would make ice cream sundaes. When that place uh, closed down, they they'd get five gallon buckets of candy toppings for the ice cream. When it closed down, we could take home whatever topping we want. The employees got to pick one. I got Reese's Pieces. I got two gallons of Reese's Pieces in a bag. Now, when you're 16 and you can eat candy in three Big Macs and then still go, go play football, you don't really care. You don't think about that. I ate Reese's Pieces by the handful for days. It was, I enjoyed it for the first week. Second week, it got a little tougher. Third week, I couldn't look at another Reese's Pieces. I couldn't eat Reese's Pieces for years kind of spoiled me for it, you know, and I I think back and I was only thinking about my pleasure in the moment. And there is pleasure in, in, in in the moment. But we all know when we indulge ourselves in things that are not edifying, that do not build us up, pretty soon it's going to leave this taste in your mouth. And you realize, why did I do that? I was seeking immediate pleasure and immediate gain. We all have those 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 things that we, we, we run to in a very silly kind of sur- surface way. I, I hate surface illustrations, but I just figured it would lighten you up a little bit since I've been kind of uh, leaning into this pretty hard. But um, 
That is why, as parents, we don't let our children do whatever they find pleasure in at the moment. Because for, for, for kids, they're going to go after whatever seems shiniest and brightest and most fun right now. But as a parent, they see the long-term benefits and the long-term harm that will happen for, from indulging yourselves over time. And God, as our Father, sees the same thing. He sees that, yeah, there's pleasure in that in the moment, but I want better for you in the long term. I want you to be in a fruitful marriage. I want you to have a family. I want you to be rooted in me. I don't want you to be governed by all of your pleasures. But on the other side of the world, the deceits and the lies that the world tells us, if our only influence is the world, or we're influenced by the world more than we're influenced by Scripture, why would I ever be faithful? Why would I ever be pure? There's no God. There's no consequences. There's no covenant. Why? Because faithful marriage and sexual purity is no foundation in secular culture. It doesn't. Serves no purpose. Because if you're just this uh, product of uh, cosmic chaos and you're going to be here one day and gone the next, why wouldn't you get as much as you possibly can? But if we're people created in the image of God, created in the pattern of God, one day to be perfected to, to humanity, everything restored that was lost in the garden, why wouldn't that be our aim and not the culture besides us? It's It's... It's, it's difficult. It's difficult to see ourselves as that new creation in a world that wants to be anything but. But as we saw in the beginning of the Beatitudes, we saw that Jesus is setting up this sermon. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The heart that does not go after the flashy and shiny things that will wear out soon. The heart that seeks after God and longs after the things of God. I mean, really, the Beatitudes set the foundation for this. Because if we're not poor and broken over our own sin, if we're not mourning over the sin in ourselves and the sin that we see in the world around us, and we're not seeking after righteousness, then we're going to fall into the same traps as the rest of the world. Because that desire of the heart turns into physical manifestation. That desire for lust turns into adultery, as Matthew tells us in verse 29 and 30. Um, I got a lot more, so I'm going to try to run through this self-edit as I go. Um, you know, that physical relationship, we were made for that. You know, if you watch a new baby, they find comfort against the warmth of their mother. If you visit someone in a nursing home, they find comfort in the holding of a hand, an embrace, caring. We were made for physical embrace. We were made to comfort and to love one another the way that our God loves us. But anything good can be distorted. Anything good can be turned into a sin can be turned into something that is vile in the sight of God. So vile, in fact, that Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Right eye, excuse me. And then your right hand. There's this, this picture of the, the dominance of the right hand in the right eye. If your eye causes you to look at someone in lustful, it is better to lose your eye, like he tells us in chapter 18, and live than to go into heaven 
or excuse me, going to hell with both eyes. Same thing with your, your, your hand. Your right hand is the, the dominant. Jesus is saying it is better to not have the hand that you write with, the hand that you eat with, the hand that you shake hands with, the hand that you work with and earn a living for your family. It is better to go without that than to continue sinning. That's where Jesus is going here. Because anything is better than going to hell. And get rid of whatever causes you to sin and whatever causes you to stumble. And that's the universal principle for any sin is to die to it. That we, it is better to cut off from your life. That's why repentance is not just something that you do once when you pray a prayer. It is, it is a process throughout the Christian life. Repentance is literally turning from. Sin is here. I am literally turning from my sin. I am moving in faith toward my Savior. That movement of turning from sin to faith is called obedience. And that is the Christian life, and we do it over and over again. Because pretty soon we find ourselves looking right back at sin. We have to repent, to trust in faith, walk toward our Savior, and over and over and over again. Repent and turn. Uh, when I was looking for illustrations about this passage, uh, I don't know what I was looking for. Uh, I, you never you just go on Google and just type in random words and don't do that. But um, it's a whole other sermon. But uh, you just think about, I was thinking about martyrs. Okay, well, you know, what martyrs have lost their eyes or lost their uh, hands? I came across this video that was, oh man, it was so powerful. Have you, any of you ever been to I Am Second? The uh, website, I Am Second. Um, so I Am Second is a ministry that just, uh, they, they, they videotape people's testimonies. Uh, what they were before, what Christ did in their life, and, and who they are now. Uh, it's, it, every testimony gives glory to God. And you see all these amazing stories, but I found one on there. Uh, her name is, what was her name? Uh, Lauren Scruggs. She was a model, and she was a fashion writer. And she had everything going for her. She traveled around to Milan and Paris and go to all these flashy events. And her uh, appearance, and the appearance of everyone else she was writing about was her sole focus. So one day, she has a tragic accident. They are going on a trip with a family friend who owned a plane, and she walked into the train, the plane propeller. And it took out her left eye and her left hand. I was like, I'm looking for sermon illustrations about taking out your eye and your hand if there's sin. Like, Man, this is almost, the parallel is almost uh, just uncanny. It's amazing how the Lord works. But her testimony was amazing. So here's this girl. Is everything in front of her as far as the world's concerned. She wakes up from her coma, so highly medicated she can't even think. And her first thought is, will any man ever love me because I look like this? How superficial is our culture? She just lost her hand and her eye. She's worrying about, will anyone love me because I look like this? But the amazing story of this brave woman is that she saw it as God's call in her life to redirect her priorities. She saw the beauty she used to see in, in modeling and in, in fashion, she now sees in God's redemptive power. So she sees her calling now to help young girls see the beauty that is within them and that the beauty that God says they have being made in, in his image, not being reliant on 
outward appearance. So that just stuck out to me. If you ever, it's, it is a little graphic. Um, they don't show anything, obviously, but it's, it's a powerful testimony. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking and I realize, wait, someone else with her same last name has a video on I Am Second. And as you do when you're online, you watch one video, you watch another. Two years before she did her testimony in I Am Second, her parents did a testimony. Again, this is how the Lord works. We transition from one to the next. Her parents uh, did not know the Lord when they got married. Her, her mother committed adultery. Um, her father could not forgive her, and they divorced. And they both came to know the Lord soon after this. And over a period of months and years, uh, they rekindled, and the Lord worked in that, and they got married again. They did this video two years before her video. And they were talking about what their marriage looked like when they were only living for themselves. And then a marriage that looked like putting Christ first in loving one another, submitting to one another in marriage. That one, I I couldn't help but tear up. It's beautiful. And it's a a perfect segue into this conversation on on, on divorce. And I'm going to wrap it up here. Um, But it was such a clear picture to me how the, the world only wants us to please ourselves and only wants us to look out, look out for number one, take care of what we desire most right now. But we know that that's a lie. I mean, Hebrews 13 tells us to hold the marriage bed with an honor. It's one of the last commands that the writer of Hebrews gave to the church. I want to ask you a question. Um, when was the last time that you mourned over your own sin, over your own failing? It's the last time we mourned over the sins of others, over the broken marriages. Because if we were to raise our hand right now, everyone in this room has seen the damages of divorce. Everyone in this room has seen the damages of, of adultery. Have we become so calloused, myself included, that we don't mourn over the effects of sin anymore? Not just the effects on the people, because it's terrible, but the offense to God, the idolatry in our culture that lifts pleasure above above pleasing our God. The deceits of our culture, in conclusion. What do we desire? The culture desires the immediate over the eternal, the sensual over the sacred, the lust over love, self-love over the love of God and love of others. And they they think that, that physical intimacy is the ultimate. But as we've seen, rooted in God's character, that the intimacy between the Father, Son, and Spirit, this divine intimacy, that being adopted in Christ, being brought into his household, being bonded to him in heavenly matrimony, is the greatest intimacy we can ever experience. And as believers, let's be rooted in the gospel. Let's be rooted in the truth that we are Christ's church, that we are his bride. He left all comfort, left all glory, left all splendor to walk on earth as us in our ugliness, in our sin. He knows every dark corner of our desires, everything we desire that's not him. He loved us and he bought us with a price, the ultimate price. So when we, if people in our lives are struggling in their marriage, we're leaning toward adultery who see the world around them and want to be like them, this is the conversation we need to have. Because if we're just looking at the surface, 
for just telling them to do one thing or another, not pointing them to Christ, not pointing them to our bridegroom, our reason for righteousness, and we're just rearranging chairs on the Titanic. Underneath there is an iceberg that is bringing that sinking ship down, and it's taking the world to hell with it. Our message as believers is to hold up biblical marriage. It's to honor our spouses in front of others. Love them like we love our own flesh. And proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. What he has come to do for his church and his bride. So I'm going to close with a prayer this morning. Um, I don't do this very often. But I was really meditating on this, this hymn. And I think it encapsulates it. It's a hymn by Charles Wesley. And it's called, Oh for the Heart to Praise My God. I want to use this as our, as our closing prayer it's because I think that he draws this idea together of our weakness, turning our heart toward him. Let's bow our heads and pray. Oh, for a heart to praise my God, a heart from sin set free, a heart that's sprinkled with the blood so freely shed for me, a heart resigned Submissive, meek, my great Redeemer's throne, where only Christ is heard to speak, where Jesus reigns alone. A humble, lowly, contrite heart, believing, true and clean, which neither life nor death can part from him that dwells within. A heart in every thought renewed and full of love divine, perfect and right and pure and good, a copy, Lord, of thine. Thy nature, gracious Lord, impart, come quickly from above. Write thy new name upon my heart, thy new best name of love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.